Our reading for today is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Listen now to the word of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to eat, um, something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on, the, on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer, also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, welcome. I want to, again, just remind you that in the morning at 10 o'clock, we have our morning Bible study uh, in the room over there. And uh, we'll do that for at least for the duration of Lent. And also after service today, we will have our uh, lunch together. And then again, I want to uh, invite you all to stick around and join our time of small group uh, Bible study during this season of Lent. Uh, for those of you who are new to our service, we are continuing through a series of sermons based on the New City Catechism. And today we are on question number 18. So uh, as we do uh, every week, uh, we're going to review the questions and answers. And I want to, again, invite all of you who have memorized them uh, to recite them with your eyes closed and those of you who haven't to uh, read along uh, with the screen. All right, let's begin. Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? Question two, what is God? Question three, how many persons are there in God? Question four, how and why did God create us? Question five, what else did God create? Question six, how can we glorify God? Question seven. What does the law of God require? 
Question eight. What is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? Question 13, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Question 14, did God create us unable to keep the law? Question 15, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? Question 16, what is sin? Question 17, what is idolatry? Um, I can see that as we get lower and lower that more and more of you are looking at the screen. Uh, I know they're getting harder, uh, but I want to just encourage you to... Uh, to learn them. And today, question 18, will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? All right, so uh, I want to tell you that for the sake of memorization, we have been just memorizing the catechism as it is written. Uh, I didn't want to argue with it and uh, fight with it in this series. Um, but I, with this question, uh, Pastor Dohi and uh, Pastor Danny and I, we've been talking about some of the things that we might want to change in the course of our study together. And this is one that um, we thought we want to change the wording just a little bit. So in the catechism, as it's stated, it says that God is righteously angry with our sin and will punish them both in this life and the world to come. And we want to change it instead of punish them. We're going to replace punish them with enact justice. And this is not to say that God is not going to punish them, but this is really for the sake of our the young children. Uh, just in terms of learning the catechism, we don't want to sort of stress this idea of an image of a God kind of, you know, beating them up and things like that. So let me just read you um, what, what Pastor Dohi wrote because she says it much better than I just explained it. She writes, delightfully burdened to care and educate our Graceway kids, I feel uneasy about having them put the highlighted words in the memory. I don't want our kids growing up thinking that God is a punisher. I want them to grow up in the knowledge of God as the just king, the one who enacts justice in this life and in the day to come. I don't want the language of punishment to overshadow them. I don't want them to have an image of a God whose retributive wrath is tied up with wanting to punish for our sins. Rather, a God whose holy wrath is tied up with wanting to make all that is wrong right despite our sins. So, so that's the rationale that we want to do that. So I hope uh, you're okay with that. Yeah? All right. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, God, thank you for uh, your word again today, uh, as we heard. And help us now to understand them and to take them deep into our hearts and through your spirit to be strengthened 
to be encouraged and to obey. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's scripture reading contains one of the most familiar images in all of the Bible. A shepherd separating the good sheep from the bad goats. Now this morning, those of you who've been here, you realize that we set up the sanctuary differently today. Instead of the usual three Trinitarian setup, today we have two halves. The fact that I'm on this side, I'm not suggesting anything about which side is the sheep and which side is the goats. I just wanted to do it this way so you will hopefully help you remember uh, the sermon and where you were sitting, either the left or the right. Now, the, the separation of the goat and the sheep is a very simple, straightforward-sounding parable, but scholars have argued and debated and have struggled with interpreting this for centuries. And there are dozens and dozens of different interpretations about how we are to understand what Jesus is saying here. Uh, luckily for us, all of the different translations, all of the different interpretations, really boils down to one of two options. First option, and the one that you are probably most familiar with, and probably the way you heard it most of your life, goes something like this. At the end of history, just as a shepherd will uh, separate the flock at night, and the reason shepherds do this is because goats don't have as much of a thick coat as sheep. And so at night, goats need more uh, protective shelter from the cold air, where sheep apparently like the crisp evening, nighttime in the outdoors. And so a, a shepherd will separate them to provide goats with uh, a little more protection. And so Jesus says, at the end of history, at the end of time, just like that, God is going to separate, he says, the nations. And those who acted with mercy toward other people will enter into eternal life, while those who fail to do good will enter and be sent to eternal punishment. Right? Pretty straightforward. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jana Reese, but she has a book called, I don't know if it's pronounced Twibble or Twibble, um, but she's taken the whole Bible and she's made a, uh, I don't have the right language for this, she made a Twitter, what is it, uh, what's a, she made a tweet, thank you, she made a tweet for each chapter of the Bible. So if you want to like read the whole Bible like really fast, every chapter, there you go. For chapter 25 of Matthew, her tweet in her twibble twibble is this. Calling all sheep, all sheep head this way to heaven. Thanks for feeding and clothing the poor. P.S. Sorry goats, you're on your own. Right? That's kind of the way that this parable is generally interpreted and probably the one that you've heard. Now, this is very appealing because it is universal in scope and it doesn't depend on any exclusive claims that we make about faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone will be judged by the same rule according to how they have treated those in need. It seems fair. And the six acts of mercy are repeated four times to emphasize how important these acts are. Crudely put, do good, go to heaven. Don't do good, go to hell. This is what someone has labeled salvation by humanitarianism. And that's the way that it's often taught and interpreted. It's a widely held view. 
and resonates within our postmodernist sensibilities of toleration and pluralism. It seems fair, and it's an appeal you can make to anyone and everyone, regardless of their particular faith position. If you live your life well and with kindness, then, then you ought to get rewarded. You ought to have eternal life. But if you don't, if you're, if you're a jerk, if you're mean, yeah, you, you deserve some punishment. And it's the way we kind of wish the world would operate. And it's the kind of morality tale that we teach our children. Be good, be kind. Uh, a really good example of this is Leo Tolstoy's short story, Where Love Is, God Is. Sometimes people refer to this short story as the story of Martin the Cobbler. It's about a guy named Martin, who's a cobbler. Uh, a cobbler is one who uh, fixes shoes. And so it's about where he has just lost his wife and his child and has become a very embittered man. But one day, a holy man on pilgrimage happens to stop by, hears Martin tell his story about where his uh, faith is, and encourages him to read the Gospels, the New Testament, to see what God would have him do and how, how to live. And so Martin buys a, a Bible, starts reading the New Testament, and he's, and he's changed by it, right? He, he realizes how, how, who Jesus is and of his love for him and so on. <clears throat> and as he's... <clears throat> And as he's reading the Gospels, one night he hears a voice telling him, Martin, Martin, look out into the street tomorrow, for I shall come. And so the next day, he's very excited, as you might imagine, and he's just constantly looking out the window from his shop to see if Jesus will come. He doesn't see him. But as he looks out the window, he sees an old man sweeping in the snow who looks very, very worn out and tired. And so he invites him in, makes him a cup of tea, and a second cup of tea, and a third cup of tea, and shares the story of his life and, and the story of the gospel uh, with, this, with this man and encourages him and sends him off. Afterwards, he sees a, a woman with a little infant struggling again in the cold. He invites them in. He hears their story, their, their struggles. He gives them some food, some milk for the child, an extra blanket that he has for this, this, this infant. A little bit later, he sees a woman carrying a basket of apples to send, a little boy coming and stealing one of the apples, and the woman catches him, and she's about to beat him. And so he goes out, and, and he pleads with her. He says, no, 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 you know, he was just hungry. You know, just a kid, let him go. I'll pay for the apple. And all day, right, he's looking, but Jesus doesn't come. So he goes home, closes shop, and he reads his Bible again. And as he reads, he hears a voice. Martin, Martin, don't you know me? And then as he looks up, he sees in the darkness in the corner, each of the three people that he has helped that day saying to him, it is I, it is I, it is I. Martin then looks back on the Bible and he reads, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And Tostoy ends the story with this line, and Martin understood that his dream had come true, and that the Savior had really come to him that day, and he had welcomed him. Right? It's a, it's a lovely story. It's 
I encourage you to read it to your children. Um, but I do have some misgivings about it. I wonder if Martin would have acted with the same kindness had he not heard the voice. Would he have looked out? Would he have paid attention? Did he only do it because he wanted to see Jesus, in which case then he behaved like the goat? But putting my cynicism aside, I think the intended message of this story is quite clear. Help those in need, and you are really helping Jesus. Right? It's a lovely sentiment. It really is. And you find a similar idea in a number of different stories. Uh, I was thinking of Henry Van Dyke's The Fourth Wiseman, which is almost a, an identical kind of story. And even in, this, in this, the Broadway show Les Mis, for example, the very last line um, before the chorus is, um, to help another person is to see the face of God. Right? It's, it's the same idea, that, what, that when, when we're helping the poor, when we're helping those in need, it's like we're... we're helping Jesus somehow. Uh, Mother Teresa, I remember, often said something along these lines, that whenever she was helping the poor, it was like she saw the face of God in those people that she was helping. So if we take the reading today in isolation, take it out of the Bible, and just keep it in isolation as an independent story, I think that, that is a, this line of interpretation is a reasonable an acceptable understanding of the parable. But the problem is that the overwhelming evidence, the teaching of the Bible, is against this, right? That it is not about how can we save ourselves. It is not about do good and go to heaven. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for you have been saved through faith, through faith, it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You are saved by grace alone. Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works that we have done, but by his righteousness, according to his own mercy. An even bigger problem with this line of interpretation is that it then makes Christ's death irrelevant, cruel, even sadistic. Why have Jesus died this horrific crucifixion death if it's unnecessary, if we can save ourselves, just do good? So that brings us to another possible interpretation of this parable, one that you are probably less familiar with. Rather than reading this as an independent story, we need to put it in the context of the whole gospel. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus is giving his last set of teachings to his disciples before going to the cross. And this is the very last thing he teaches. He's just given a series of parables about what to expect at the end times because his disciples have asked him, what is the, you know, how is the world going to end? And he tells them, here's what to expect through a series of parables. He tells about a wise serpent, a servant who feeds people dinner on time. He tells about wise virgins who have oil prepared, extra oil prepared. He tells about a wise servant who has invested the master's talent while he's away. And the shared lesson from these parables is you don't know when the end is, but live in such a way that you are prepared. Live in such a way that you are faithful. Live in such a way that 
shows and demonstrates the trust that you've been given. Here's how you ought to live in light of the truth. So in this last teaching, as Jesus is facing crucifixion, he lays out a vision of him coming back in glory in final judgment when the kingdom of God, the reign of Christ, will be fully established. And so it's within this framework we have to understand this particular story. And all scholars, regardless of their line of interpretation, agree that the key to understanding this is how we understand a couple of words that Jesus uses in telling this story. Verse 32, Jesus says, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. When Christ comes in glory, all the nations will be gathered, and he will separate them. It doesn't say people. That's a little bit misleading, I think. It says he will separate them. And the word for nations is one of those key words that we have to understand. This is the word ethne, from which we get in English ethnic. And it means nations, or sometimes people think of as people groups. But in Matthew and in the Bible in general, it's used to describe those people who are not Jews. And typically it's translated as Gentiles. As Gentiles. So the separation here, if we're going to be kind of literal on this, he's separating nations, not individual people, and it's talking about the separation of non-Jewish people, Gentiles. From Matthew's perspective, judgment comes after the gospel has been preached to all the ethne, to all the nations. Jesus says in Matthew 24, at the beginning of the series of teachings, when this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a witness to all the ethne, all the nations, and then the end will come. So this may not be a judgment, a general judgment about everybody, but specifically about unbelieving nations and peoples. Second, in verse 40, Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, most people, when they hear that the least of these my brothers, we think of um, brothers in the sense of the bond we share with all of humanity, right? We're sort of brother, the brotherhood of humanity, something like that. But again, in Matthew, brothers always refers to either biological members or to those who are his disciples. The brothers are those who belong to Christ. For example, Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples on a short-term mission trip, and he gives them this instruction. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And whoever gives one of these little ones, same word, one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Right? It's very, very similar to what he's saying here. Jesus is calling missionaries, evangelists, his followers, the little ones. They're not just anyone who is sick and poor. It's not just who's, you know, the, the downtrodden and those who are suffering. He's referring specifically to the members of his new community who would be under persecution, who would be regarded as the little ones, the despised ones of the earth, as they bore witness to Jesus Christ. 
During this time, the Jews believed that when, when God came to do his final judgment, he would separately judge Israel from the way he would judge the rest of the nations. And now Jesus is taking that idea and he's relocating that judgment around himself and around the community that he himself has created in his body. So read in this larger context, Jesus is more likely giving a word of encouragement to his followers, to those who will find themselves as they go out spreading his word. They will find themselves hungry and thirsty and naked and persecuted and homeless and sick and thrown in prison. It's not about how everyone will be treated as it is more about how those who treat the new community will be judged. Now, for me, this second way of thinking about this, this interpretation, is much more compelling and satisfying, both textually and contextually. I don't know if it is for you. Now, having said that, having said that, it does not excuse us from this ethic of the first interpretation of needing to love and to serve the world. Someone has said that we sometimes teach the right doctrine with the wrong text. We sometimes teach the right doctrine with the wrong text. And I think something of that is going on here. An ethic of loving our neighbors, especially those who are weak and vulnerable, is consistently taught and lived out by Jesus. And he commands his disciples, and we dare not excuse ourselves from a life of service. And we live within this tension. Without softening salvation by grace and faith alone, we must also recognize that faith without works is dead. Works do not save us, but they are a necessary consequence of our faith. It's a necessary response of those who are in Christ. If non-believers are expected and are judged by their actions toward those who are in need, how much more should we be committed? If God expects non-believers to show kindness to the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and those imprisoned, shouldn't we, we who claim to know God and the love of God, shouldn't we who are filled with the Spirit of God, shouldn't we be doing much more? Not because we want to earn salvation, not because we want to avoid hell, but because we have come to experience the love of God in Jesus Christ, and through him we can do all things. The love of God motivates us and makes real the faith that we profess in him. Let me make uh, two reflections with you today. One, let me say a word about judgment, because that's what our catechism is about today. Jesus says to the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus says that you are blessed by the father. He uses this language of inheritance that God has made preparation since the very beginning of time. And it tells us, it points to that this is all a gift, that eternal life is a gift, that you are saved by the mercy of God. On the other hand, to the goats, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this eternal fire was not prepared for us. It was prepared for the devil and his angels 
But now we are going to be sent, those ghosts are going to be sent there along with the devil and his angels. This depart from me is really the more scary phrase than the eternal fire. Because I think Jesus is pointing to this separation and he's using this metaphor of eternal fire. I think it has to be a metaphor at some level because in other parables in speaking about this, Jesus says it will be, people will be cast into the utter darkness. Right? So you can't really have utter darkness and eternal fire at the same time. God is light, and so separation from God suggests there will be, will be darkness, but then there is this image of this um, eternal fire. Now, the use of a metaphor is not to say, oh, you know, it's not going to be so bad, it's, right? It, we use a metaphor because it's trying to describe something that, that can't be described. What it's like to have this separation, this eternal separation, depart from me, from God. Now, <clears throat> I know, of course, that the idea of eternal punishment, of eternal fire, is not popular. It's never been popular. Many Christians today are very uncomfortable with this idea of eternal punishment and have tried to soften it by suggesting a variety of ways. People have suggested, for example, conditional immortality. That is that the goats or whoever gets sent to the eternal fire, it is not a timeless, conscious pain that they will experience, but that what they call a conditional immortality, that they will experience annihilation, that that's what it means to have eternal separation. But the most popular form of trying to, uh, uh, Francis Chan has a book called Erasing Hell, which is, um, right, that's what some people are trying to do. Some people have suggested, again, because this, this, this idea is so difficult, that in the end, God's love will overcome everything. Rob Bell, a number of years ago, uh, published a book called Love Wins, in which he argued, he kind of repopularized this idea of universal salvation, that in the end, God's love will overcome every sin, even the sins of those who are unrepentant, right? That there will be no eternal punishment. And here you can add something like purgatory, right? That God will send the bad people to uh, purgatory, like, like a parent might send a child out to time out, so you send them there for a little while in purgatory, and then after they learn their lesson, you reestablish a relationship, and then, and then you bring them out of purgatory, and now they get to go to heaven. <clears throat> um, it's not a new idea. It's been there from the very, very beginning uh, of Scripture. And there are some verses in the Bible that suggest this. And so this is not completely crazy, right? There are very, very... Uh, intelligent, very well-thinking theologians who have argued for this because there are passages. For example, Jesus says in John 12, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So, so there are suggestive passages regarding this idea of universalism. But again, but again, I have to say that the overwhelming witness of the scriptures is against this idea. Without judgment, it seems to me that all of our living, 
all of our choices, our obedience and disobedience, makes no difference at all. Choose this day whom you will serve. Makes only sense if that's a real choice. Follow me. Choose this day whom you will serve. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The entire Decalogue and all of the laws. Love one another. All of these commands that we are given, if our choices don't matter in the end, then, you know, it's like we're just the the playthings of a capricious God where, you know, just do whatever you want because it doesn't, in the end, make any difference. It all becomes, to me, just a joke in terms of our living. And that is not the God as witnessed to in the scriptures. God is not someone who is this, you know, haphazard about our obedience. God is passionate about our decisions, about our choices. He commands us to follow him. That those decisions do matter at some level. And again, more importantly, I think we're back to the cross. If our choices don't matter, then Christ did not need to die. And the whole gospel is worthless. It's inexcusably cruel for God to do that to someone. Why have Jesus died for our sins when he's just going to wipe away all the sins regardless anyway? I believe our choices matter. I believe even our small choices matter. Because notice that the goats, they're not serial murderers. They failed in just some basic human decency. Our small choices matter in our serving. God takes seriously our relationship with one another. God is passionate that we care for one another in the deepest possible way. We have the freedom to choose, and God will honor those choices. And if you choose separation, I think God will honor even that. Now, this is not to scare you, especially you guys over there. This is not to do that, okay? The good news is that judgment is not something to be feared because we are in Christ and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We need not worry about our eternal destiny and the final judgment. Instead, we are freed. We are saved. And as in all of the other parables Jesus tried to communicate here, in light of that, in light of that freedom, in light of the salvation that is given to us, Freely, how then shall we live while waiting for his return? How do we go about living as if Christ is really the king and that Christ's reign, that God's kingdom of God is being established? How do we do that? And I would say, you are not a goat. Live like a sheep. You are not a goat. Live like a sheep. Good fruit comes from good trees. Goats do not turn into sheep. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He didn't say, you know, become salt or try to turn into. You are what you are because of who you are in Christ. Make real the reality that he has already made real in you. In his death and in his resurrection. Because the surprise for the goat and the sheep is not 
what they were doing, they knew what they were doing, is that they didn't recognize Jesus. It seems like the sheep went about doing good because that's who they are. Whereas the goat were looking for opportunities that would be self-serving in their service. Right? If you knew that Jesus was going to be preaching today, you would have brought all your friends today. Right? Yes? It, you know, this reminds me of, uh, you know, there's a, there's a Korean classic folktale. I apologize in advance for butchering it and if I misunderstood the story. Uh, of Norbu and Hungbu. You know the story? These two brothers. So Hungbu is the good brother. And one day, Hungbu sees a sparrow. I guess it's a sparrow. And uh, it's got a broken wing. And so Hungbu's a, he's a nice boy. So he uh, takes the bird, takes care of it until the wing heals. And then the sparrow flies away. A little bit later, the, the sparrow comes back. And to thank Hungbu, he brings some seeds. So Hungbu plants these seeds. And these seeds grow up, these giant gourds, these pumpkins. And when he cuts one open, like treasures and gold come out. His brother hears about this, Norbu, right? And looks around for a bird with a broken wing, doesn't see one. So he finds a bird, breaks the wing, and then he heals it. And he threatens the bird, you better bring me some seeds, and then sends the bird off. Sparrow comes back, brings him some seeds. He plants the seeds. They grow up. Large gourds come up. He cuts the gourds open, thinking treasure's going to you know, fall out. But instead, demons come out and drag him away to a very bad place. Right? Same set of actions, really, but completely different motivations. I think that's the story here. Yesterday, I know the... Uh, the ladies had the, the pinkies out event. Yes, did that happen? Yeah. Right? They collected socks for the homeless. Last year, you gave money so that we could build a water well in Kenya. Many of you continue to sponsor students in Kenya so that they can have lunch and go to school. Some of you have sent meals for people who are struggling with, with the send a meal or take a meal. But I, but I know that none of you did that so that you could check off these six acts of mercy and punch your ticket to go to heaven, right? Water, check. Food, check. Socks, check. Prison, oh no, I better go visit somebody in prison so I got all six checked off. Like, I hope none of you are thinking that way or living that way. You know, this week, because I was working on this sermon, I was especially mindful of this, and Every time my wife, you know, my wife's been uh, sick with, with shingles the last couple weeks and really in a lot of pain. And so, you know, she's asked me to, like, bring cups of tea or uh, I've done more cooking than usual. No, I've been getting takeout more often than usual, right? Um, but imagine if I was thinking, oh, here's, I brought her some water. I brought her some food. Check, check. I visited the sick. Check. Right? How horrible would that be if my actions were motivated by wanting to check off this list of things I had to do? I think what Jesus is telling us in this last parable is don't calculate. 
Don't keep score of your goodness. Don't do it because there's a celebrity involved or it's an insta-worthy moment or you're looking for new experiences to enrich your life. Love and serve your neighbors and even your enemies because that is what the disciples of Jesus Christ do. That's what sheep does. Don't do it because you're trying to game the system so that you can get into heaven. Don't do it because you're worried that you are a goat and somehow this will help you turn into a sheep. Don't do it because you're a hypocrite trying to show off when other people are watching to see if you are being good or not. Instead, how about helping someone because they need a little help and they happen to be your neighbors? Live out what you already are. You are a child of God, loved by God, redeemed by Christ, and empowered by the Spirit so that you can do all things in him who makes it possible. It's not hard, right? Water, a meal, basic hospitality, welcome. He's not asking you to cure cancer or or solve the problem of poverty in Haiti. I mean, if you can do those things, please do that, right? But he's talking about basic, basic things. You gave me a drink. You gave me a meal, and you did it because you are my disciples, not because you were trying to earn brownie points to heaven. Jesus calls us to pay attention to the people around us, to see who needs mercy and compassion. How can I be fully present to give something of myself to bless those around me? How can I live in such a way that demonstrates the reality of my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. Live out the call of your baptismal vocation and let your light shine so that others may see your good works and give glory to God. We are saved by faith, but these works flow out of us as we continue to abide in him. Jesus says, you are not a goat. You are not a goat. Don't be motivated by self-interest. Do the good, not for some ulterior motive, but because you are my disciples. You are in Christ. Now live like it. Let's pray together. Lord, you have promised us, and we know that your word is true, because none of, you, none of your promises have ever been broken. We know that in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and that in him, in him and in him only, we have eternal life. With that security, with that joy, with that knowledge, help us to live in such a way that demonstrates that truth. Help us to feed, to quench the thirst to provide clothing and welcome and visitation to those who are in need. God, help us to be mindful, to keep our eyes open to those around us and so fulfill our calling as disciples of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.